There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, and I'm Wanda Wallace. Now, today, I want to take a little bit of time to do something we don't often do very very much, and that's to look forward into time. So I find in our day-to-day mode where we're busy executing, getting things done, pushing stuff forward, challenging our teams, managing people, giving feedback, that we just don't stop to think about the future state of our organizations or of leadership or of our competitive market space. So today, I want to focus first on this whole notion of artificial intelligence or digital or robotics. Pick your favorite phrase in there. And I want to talk a little bit about how that's going to impact our work and our leadership styles. And then I want to shift gears and talk about what it means to stay relevant as a leader in that kind of world and what it takes to really succeed in some of the top jobs. So that's the focus for today. With me today, I have a very special guest. L. Kevin Kelly is a global technology executive, investor, author, privacy activist, and expert consultant. And he focuses in the areas of leadership, with technology and talent um, in the 21st century. Currently, Kevin is the chief executive of Halo Privacy, a leading cybersecurity organization that's focusing on digital security solutions for high-profile individuals in Fortune 500 companies. And Halo's mission is 100% privacy protection for client communications, proprietary information, and sensitive data, something we all need desperately, Kevin. In addition, Kevin was um, the chief executive officer of Hydric and Struggles International, an an incredibly successful executive search firm with a modern focus on global leadership development in over 60 countries. Kevin's written three books, The CEO, Lowdown on the Top Job, Top Jobs, How They're Different and What You Need to Succeed, and Lastly, Leading in Turbulent Times, all great insights for our forward focus. So, Calvin, welcome to the show. Um, having me on today, and I really appreciate the, the time. Oh, I appreciate you taking time to talk with us. I think it's going to be exciting. So, let's start with a bit of futuristic thinking. Um, and as I've said, it's something I don't think we do nearly enough of Lots of companies, in fact, every one of my clients is talking about some version of digitalization, whether that's artificial intelligence or roboticizing work or um, cybersecurity as another one or just artificial intelligence in general. So you've talked a lot about the impact of AI. How do you see all of this thing playing out in the future? What's around the corner? Well, I think, uh, Wanda, you hit on this uh, earlier in your introduction, which was great, by the way, in terms of the speed at which we're absorbing information today is like no other generation has ever had in its lifetime. And um, it was fascinating for me. I was at the CES concert in uh, Las Vegas um, in January, and I was sitting there with an executive from an automobile company, a top... um, um, consumer goods brand, and what they were saying is that 
we're all going to be out of business in the next five to seven years because everyone's building a business model based on what they did before. For example, a car. You know, you know, a car that was developed in 1896, all they've been trying to do for the last 100 plus years is, you know, build a better car, not think about things differently. Now, if I told you that going into the future regarding vis-a-vis artificial intelligence, that uh, you're going to walk into a restaurant and all of a sudden you're going to have the maitre d' be a robot, you're going to have the bartender be a robot, and you're going to have an arm that's delivering a tray of food to you at your table, you know, remotely driven by a drone. If I said this to you six months ago, you'd probably think I was crazy, but that's the world we're living in today. So how fast do you think this is coming? I hear lots of people saying, you know, like, let's take automated cars. You know, there's a lot of uh, self-driving cars. There's a lot of interest and enthusiasm. I'm, for one, a big proponent. It would make my life much simpler. But then I have the other side of the coin that people say it's not going to come that fast. Too many complexities. So how fast do you think this world well, is going to appear? I think it's going to come much faster than people expect it to. To put it in perspective, uh, Friedman um, who you know from The World is Flat, wrote the book, uh, just came out with a great book called um, Thank You for Being Late. And he described that technology or technological advances from the turn of the century are going back a thousand years. It used to take one or two hundred years for technologies to move around the globe. And if you fast forward again, all the way till today, it's five to seven years. So that's the change that's taken place. And so whether it's the next generation, which I know we're going to get into later, of individuals entering the workforce, or whether it's those of us that have been around the horn who are trying to, you know, keep up with technological, you know, devices, whether it's a new iPhone or new Apple, you know, gadget that's yeah. coming out, Alexa, et cetera, that, you know, we're, we're, we're having to digest this at a much faster pace. And so to answer your question, it's going to happen at a much faster pace than the, uh, people ever w- w- could have imagined before. Yeah. And that's part of the problem today. It's creating a sort of an ADD society. Okay, so let's then shift on that one and say, with all of these advances, with all the technology, and with more that we can't even imagine coming, I think, how do you see this impacting organizations and the leadership in organizations? Um, it's, you know, it's interesting because given my history, as you mentioned, I was CEO of Hydra Consultant when I spent 18 uh, years, roughly 17, 18 years in that business. It went from more of a dictatorial type of leadership, if you will, mm-hmm. Wanda, to one that's more agile today. Mm-hmm. And we call it more leading from the center. I mean, it, it, it's so many, uh, leadership today is very difficult. Um, you have to have both the ability to be somewhat dictatorial, yet at the same time leading from the center, meaning motivating and engaging the people in your organization to bring them forward. So it's had a huge impact on leadership or organizations and change, but it's also had a huge uh, impact on the fact that where are the jobs going in the future? So, for example, given my comment about um, the maitre d', the bartender, the waiter, et cetera, waiter, waitress, where are those jobs going to go? Now it'll be somebody in the back office or back of the uh, restaurant, you know, on a computer controlling everything in a restaurant versus whereas before, you know, you had human capital taking on these roles. So you know, the whole dynamic of work is shifting, not only from a leadership perspective, but from an employee perspective as well. 
Okay. It's an interesting thing. I mean, so you can have an image of what it is to lead a restaurant if we stay with that notion as the manager of the restaurant and motivating the wait staff and the bartenders and the maitre d's and keeping them doing and specializing their jobs and so on. But when it's all automated from the back of the restaurant with the computer engineers, motivation and leading has to take on a whole new meaning. No, absolutely. And it's not just the restaurant business per se. I'm, you know, I could take yeah. out uh, major corporations that, um, and what they have to do today. So going back to your artificial intelligence question at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, I was surprised. I was always like, if somebody could figure out a way to couple like recruiting, meaning presenting mm-hmm. a person for a job, with also understanding their EQ or the EQ or mm-hmm. CQ side of the equation, EQ being emotional quotient, CQ being yeah. cultural quotient, that would be a panacea for helping organizations recruit, right? So yeah. recently, there have been uh, articles and research done on the fact that AI is now helping organizations get rid of resumes. And what I specifically mean by that, it's... Um, they're going through people's, through artificial intelligence, they're going through people's, you know, websites, uh, their web 2.0, you know, Facebook, yep. LinkedIn, um, uh, you know, you name another one, Instagram, et cetera. And they're trying to pair people's personality with organizations. And that's something new I've never seen before. And that's just evolved too. That's having a huge impact on organizations today. So not just from the restaurant standpoint, but just all the way through to corporate America. That's incredible to imagine that some um, artificial intelligence programming is combing people's online presence through all the different social media sites and trying to ascertain their personality, IQ, interest, EQ, all those sorts of things, and pairing that with the personality and the organization or the role in the organization. So we don't even need a resume. Wow. That would change the world. No, it's, it's huge. I mean, again, given you, I have to do this because uh, you know one of, given our backgrounds, Duke, uh, given your great work at Duke, and when we yep. used to do, you know, uh, statistic analysis of employees, and we wanted mm-hmm. to do um, assessments, right? Mm-hmm. We had to go through this whole process of questioning, and mm-hmm. now it's changed to profiling people's personalities and how they're going to fit with organizations through AI. I just find that mm-hmm. fascinating. That's and interesting. This is something that's only happened the last uh, four to six weeks. Four to six weeks. All right. So as you look forward, are you seeing other things that are changing the way we think about people and leading people based on an artificial intelligence? Do you have any other examples? The only other examples, I mean, I do have other examples, and it comes down to the knock-on effect to the economy. So, for example, if this next generation, you know, 1978 to 2005, um, only, you know, want to work two to three years at a clip and have 14 jobs by the time they're 38, what is that going to do to organizations when they try to drive their strategy globally? What is it going to mm-hmm. do to the real estate market? Specifically, what I mean by that is, do we need all these big buildings and office space where most people want to work from home today for, you know, telecommuting? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ramifications. Or, you know, now with AI, going back to the restaurant example, or even the you know company example, is somebody going to want to sit back and do 
or control these things remotely versus going physically into an office today. So how is that work? I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me to have these conversations, Wanda, because um, I learn something new all the time, but it's also going back to your question about speed. It's amazing at the speed, the speed of which these things are happening, which is, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's think about for a moment, kind of, those of us that are still working and still trying to plan a resume and all those things, what do we need to be doing to kind of future-proof our resumes? Is there advice for young people in the workforce? Um, for young people, I think a lot of it's based on social media. Uh, mm-hmm. So to future-proof, excuse me, to future-proof your uh, resume, it's kind of a difficult thing to do because most, in my experience, most recruiters will interview you on the phone or in person uh, and then go through your resume with you mm-hmm. and then fix it um, accordingly, depending on which type of job you're going after. So okay. it's difficult to future proof it. Um, mm-hmm. I would say to people, my, my advice is, and I try to do it myself, reverse mentoring. And you and I have spoken about this before. Yeah. I, I believe yeah. is a huge thing. Um and this came, you know, again, from a conversation you and I had a couple of weeks ago about uh, boards and CEOs trying to mm-hmm. stay relevant. So when, mm-hmm. when I say future-proof, future-proofing is more staying, I have a great reverse mentor. And so I spend uh, a lunch or an hour with her two days a month, and um, I learn more about what's happening in social media, the new technologies, et cetera. So... When, I, when you mentioned future proof, that's what I was thinking about right away, systematically. How do I keep myself relevant in a world that's changing right. at this uh, pace? Right. So. I, I've um, recently been having more and more conversations with this younger generation and just curious about their views and how they're seeing things, many of them willing to be quite vocal. So it's not a difficult conversation to have. And they've been amazed at understanding more and more and more about how they view current organizations. I can see why um, a reverse mentoring could open eyes, both about how they think about uh, social media, and that's evolving even as we speak, and not in the obvious ways, as well as how they think about leadership and with their own organizations and what they think people should and shouldn't do, and what's obvious to them and what's not to the rest of us. It's a fascinating um, Mm -hmm. exercise, so a great way of staying relevant. I find too few people are judgmental as opposed to curious. So we don't get the best out of them. I agree um, with you on. I mean, what's fascinating is so I think when you and I connected a few weeks ago, um, I had just finished having conversations with 13 or 14 CEOs who were completely and utterly frustrated. And mm-hmm the paradigms in the business world are changing. And what mm-hmm. I specifically mean by that is if you go back to, you know, I think it was one of the books I think Bain wrote, you can't deviate too much from the core of your business, right? Mm-hmm. But in the boardrooms today, the CEOs that I had spoken with were frustrated because when they went into the boardroom and they talked about how do we grow the business? Because all companies want to focus on growth, right? Mm-hmm. How do you stay relevant? As you said, how do you keep focusing on growth and how do you continue to drive shareholder value? Mm -hmm. So 
these CEOs that I had spoken with were frustrated because when they brought ideas or new ideas to the boards, they would run into a wall mm-hmm. because it was more of a philosophical difference, if you will, in terms of, okay, I want to start I want to deviate from the core, but I don't want to deviate mm-hmm. just one or two places. I want to go five or six, which if you look at uh, Amazon's done that, not many other mm-hmm. companies have, but boards today mm-hmm. are pushing back on that. And a lot of them, the best quote I've heard is, it's the first generation where grandchildren are teaching grandparents, meaning board members, how to use technology. Mm-hmm. So it's an understanding of this. It, it comes full circle to our conversation about the pace at which things are happening today and how do you keep yeah. up with that and how do corporations and CEOs deal with that. And a, a big piece of it is they all love the reverse mentoring idea. Okay. Are there other ways that we can stay more relevant to what's happening with the younger generations in the marketplace besides reverse mentoring? Um, yeah, well, I'm yeah, just you know yeah. track your children down in the cybersecurity world. You know that's uh, I'm not sure your children will like that. Mine no, but um, <laughs> I think that uh, yeah, just you know, there's articles, press every day. It's just, you know how do you keep relevant in the today's world? I think reverse mentoring is the best way, personally. But um, yeah, there's other ways in terms of okay. engaging with. Uh, the, the newer generation or as you interview. I mean, as you interview mm-hmm. people, as you um, look to hire people in your organizations, it's, you know, it's a great way to learn as well. Okay. Let me ask you, I want to ask you a slightly unfair question about all this, but as I talk to organizations about the younger generation and about what it means to manage and lead a younger generation, all that just, I get enormous pushback, not from the grandparents, from the baby boomers generation, but from the Gen X, the ones in the middle, those are the ones I'm finding the most resistant to reverse mentoring ideas, to learning ideas, to changing ideas. Do you see the same? So, I'm sorry, you're saying that the, my generation, being 50, is um, pushing back more so than the other yeah, generation? Yeah, 40, 40 to 50 is pushing back more than uh, 60 plus. Hmm. So you don't um, see I that? I think... No, what I do see, if we're going to go down that path, is that the the perception of entitlement, if that makes yeah. sense. So yes. I think what you see in the, that generation is we had to work delivering newspapers or being lifeguards or um, being busboys at restaurants, and it seems like uh, these jobs, people don't want to work as hard as we did. So I think that therein lies one of the challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we're facing today. Okay. All right. I don't Fair know. If I don't have um, empirical data on that, but uh, that's what I believe in just having conversations with my friends. So. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask that is because the attitude about engaging reverse mentoring, you have to believe that there's something you're actually going to really learn from the other generation. You have to get away from some of the negative components in order to genuinely listen. That's the only reason for asking, not trying to take you off down a wrong track here or one that is not within your um, particular interest. Okay, so I have one oh, last no, question. No. I mean, I, what I find fascinating about that, though, is uh, things like that I don't know. So I'm, I'm super sensitive, as you know, 
because I run a cybersecurity company. And when I say cyber and we got into this, it's not a panacea. We lock down and secure communications. So voice, video, text, email. So it's all about how people communicate. Mm -hmm. So I understand completely what you're saying because without my reverse mentor, and I have children, they're 14 and 16 and 18. And I know, for example, um, Instagram. So without my reverse mentor, I wouldn't know there was a Finstagram. Uh, Do you know Finstagram? Yes, I do. I know it. I don't use that one, but I know it. Yes. So these, I don't. So Instagram is Instagram. Finstagram is the fake Instagram. So -hmm. these are things that I pick up, which my children probably aren't happy about. But um, these are things that I learned that I would never know anything about without a reverse mentor. Now. There's a bunch of other things as well in terms of technology and Web 2.0 things that are happening. But these are little things that I pick up. So I learn a lot and I can have that conversation openly with my children about it versus being in not in the know, if that makes sense. Right. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, Kevin, let's take a break for the moment. So I've been talking with Kevin Kelly, and as Kevin has said, he's chief executive of Halo Privacy, a cybersecurity organization that's trying to focus on high-profile individuals in Fortune 500 companies and ensuring 100% privacy protection for them. We've been talking a little bit about the pace of change that's happening in the world today and the pace in which technology has been moving forward and at an unbelievable speed. So technology is spreading around the world today in five to seven years when it used to be much slower and staying relevant with the technological changes that are coming has big impact for organizational life and for leadership and for growth of organizations. And one of the ways of staying relevant is making sure you're staying up with what the younger generation is seeing, thinking, and using. And I find one of the most fascinating ones we've talked about in this light is the notion that resumes might be irrelevant, that we can now program um, artificial intelligence to look through all of our social media websites and Facebook and so on to determine a personality and try to pair that personality with an organization. I just think that's a fascinating idea. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk with Kevin about what he sees in terms of the development of senior executives and what we can do both to prepare for executives and what makes a difference between the best and the rest of us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Kevin Kelly. Kevin is a global technology executive. As I've said, he's the chief executive of Halo Privacy, but he was also chief executive of Hydric and Struggles International, so a research firm. Kevin, we were just talking about the impact of artificial intelligence and how to begin to think about the future and what that means. And you were talking about the power of reverse mentoring. I want to talk about what you see that makes executive senior executives um, successful. But before I get there, let's go back to something about artificial intelligence. One of the things I find so frustrating is every client I'm dealing with is talking about digitization in some form. For some, that means, you know, having an online presence. For some, that means artificial intelligence. For that, it means everything and therefore sometimes nothing. How do we get to talk about this in a way that has substance as opposed to just buzzwords? Um, That's a great question. Uh, I think that, like anything, when you get the herd mentality, um, it reminds me of going back to our conversation about assessment. All of a sudden, assessment was critical, so every organization had to do assessments uh, in HR to develop leaders, Mm -hmm. which goes back to your question, but what are they assessing for? Every organization is different. So the same is holds true today for with artificial intelligence. I mean, there's it's such a broad, people throw out AI today. Mm-hmm. And the challenge is we're not at a point where people can define specifically what that means. Uh, which part of AI is it? Is it the part where you're gonna control a drone? Is it part where there's robotics? I mean, I have a friend of mine right now in Hollywood, who's doing a, a movie in AI that's actually having robots compete against uh, athletes. Um, mm-hmm. So is that a definition of AI? So I mean, it depends on what you're, at this point in time, Wanda, what people are specifically thinking about. And, you know, in the cybersecurity industry, as I mentioned before, I'm CEO of a cybersecurity firm, Halo Privacy. We are, when I say cybersecurity, People are like, oh, cybersecurity. They think it's people hacking your, you know, credit card or your social security number, et cetera. But you know, we are specifically locking down and securing communication. So there's no definition yet around AI and around cybersecurity, et cetera. But I think we'll see that in the coming months, where there's more defined um, examples of of what these actually hold to be true. Okay. So it's a matter of seeing how this gets used and, and then imagining that in my business, I guess. So it's the concreteness of it that we still need. Yes. I mean, but it goes also back to the point that, you know, you and I were speaking about before. It's happening at such a pace that we're not used to. So how do we label or name something? There was time before to do those things, but everything's been thrown in you know, topsy-turvy to do that work um, today that uh, it's, it's tough to put a specific name on something when it's coming at you like drinking from a fire hose. And that's what's happening today in both cybersecurity, it's happening in AI, it's happening with technology overall. Okay. 
All right, fabulous. Now I'm going to shift gears from AI because I th- I want to talk to you about some other subjects. Not that AI isn't still really important. Uh, you've spent decades placing senior executives into top firms and tracking their successes. So I'd like to have you talk a little bit about what it takes. What do the best do? What are the winners really like? What makes them unique? What makes them successful? Just tell us about your experience with top executives. Oh, so I had a blast. I got, you know, it's that old saying that what you learn after you know everything that counts. I learned something every day by talking to executives, but what people need to understand is every company has an evolutionary cycle, if you will. And so that depends on what type of leader you need at that time. And in today's world, as we've spoken about, it's it's even different. You need somebody who's very agile, uh, depending on the evolutionary cycle of the company, um, whether it's in growth mode, whether it's restructuring mode. most companies seem to be in growth mode today, but um, that's the type of leader that you need. And you need a leader that's going to you know, manage, uh, engage, and actually motivate people today more than ever. And also have the people around him or her that um, are going to have the ability to uh, bring on the next generation because that's key. This this. This whole generational shift is changing, and it's affecting organizations more than ever before. Okay. Any tips? I mean, so I know there are a number of people who've written about agile, agile leadership being agile. Sometimes it's hard to nail down a single definition of what it means to be agile. Any advice on how to develop agility? I think you can't take it. <laughs> it's easy for me to say now, having, you know, been in that position, but you can't take yourself too seriously. It, it's a changing world, um, and you have to be flexible, and you have to learn from others. You have to be open enough to engage and learn from others. Um, and if you can't do that, and it's tough, Wanda. I mean, you know, and I know we both talk to, yeah. CEOs, talk to CEOs all the time. It's very difficult. Yeah, especially at that point. You have um, individuals. You have an executive team. It's a very difficult spot to be in. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, So you've also written about leading in times of high stress. The book is Leading in Turbulent Times. We're certainly in turbulent times, if nothing other than just the pace, let alone all the crises that are happening. What do we need to be thinking about to be at our best in turbulent times, apart from learning from others? Uh, Well, the one thing is um, communication. If I go back to um, leading in turbulent times and I think about the, I think it was 36, 37 uh, conversation of the CEO, it's communication. It's how you communicate clearly and articulately articulately um, what you want to do with the organization, what you want them to do as individuals, uh, and where you see the direction of the company going. Uh, and that's the number one thing it came down to is fascinating talking to these individuals, particularly during the financial crisis. But, um, I'd say that's the number one thing. How do you engage and drive and motivate people and communicate articulately what you're going to do? Okay. And are there particularly, um, 
roles, opportunities that people take that make them more prepared for top jobs where they have to engage and drive and motivate? Yeah, I think it's all about risk. Um, I think it's about taking risks in your career. And uh, if I think about myself, uh, I took a risk and went to Tokyo at a very young age. Um, People thought I was crazy. Mm -hmm. But I went there and I learned the language and I took a job. And, you you know, when you're standing overseas, you take a risk in a corporation. It's one of two ways. You either succeed or you fail. Mm -hmm. And people know that um, pretty quickly. If you take mm-hmm. risk in an organization, it's easy to hide your, you know, hide in a three hundred thousand dollar, three hundred thousand, excuse me, three hundred thousand person organization. It's easy to hide and not do anything. But if you're overseas or you take a risk in an organization to do something that no one wants to do, that's when you stand out, and that's when you can be, you know, you become very successful. Okay. And presumably taking risks means that that means we deal with some successes and some failures, and that's part of what develops the resilience and agility. I'm presuming you would believe that. Oh, I do. And you know, that's a great point, because when I say when you take risks, I mean, it's not doing things that you shouldn't be doing. It's taking risks as in terms of your career, doing something mm-hmm. that no one else wants to do to potentially build your organization. Uh, but you also have to be in an organization that accepts failure, Right. So if you're one of these individuals that's a hypo or a high potential person and you go overseas or you do something or take on a new role or task in an organization and you don't succeed, they there's certain times that they need to accept that too and say, okay, this person is so qualified, but, you know, the task at hand wasn't one that, you know, was meant to be. Right. Right. I um, One of the things that I find fascinating when I'm interviewing senior executives and I ask them to talk about their careers, it is a series of risks. And the risks are often a move outside of the comfort zone. And by that, I mean outside of an area where they know all of the stuff that's going on in the area. I talked to an awful lot of high potentials who are comfortable staying in their zone of expertise because that's what they feel makes their Resumes future-proof makes them credible and needed by the organization. But the top executives are the ones that have moved around in lots of different places and taken lots of risks of that. Do you see the same thing? Well, I do. I mean, I look at my job now. I mean, four years ago, uh, prior to getting a great relationship, still do with uh, executives across the globe. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I love today is I've taken a risk. I'm loving what I'm doing, and I'm learning something. It's it's it, there's three things that uh, are critical in jobs. You know, number one mm-hmm. is interest in what you're doing. It could be you know finance, technology, uh, retail, etc. Uh, number two is compensation. And when mm-hmm. I talk about compensation, you know, seventy percent of people don't leave for more compensation. Only thirty percent do. Uh, mm-hmm. and the last and the most important is learning. And so mm-hmm. it's learning in organizations that keep people engaged, keep people in those seats. Um, mm-hmm. And for that means an executive, a CEO, or anybody else. You know, you want to be learning at all times because otherwise you get bored and that's not good for you or the organization. 
It's interesting that you say that. So the, the three things that drive people are interest in what you're doing, compensation, though that's a bigger story than just the money, and then the learning, um, keeping people engaged in their seats. So part of my a good chunk of my work is working with women at all levels within the organization. I've spent the last two weeks with women at the younger stages, so at the VP levels in the early 30s. This is a place where most organizations are losing women. They can't keep them in the organization. And a lot of concern about the bleed of the talent pipeline. Do you want to know the number one reason those women start to question whether they want to stay in this organization or not? It has to do with I'm bored. I'm bored. I don't see the next step. I'm not learning anything. Nobody's talking to me about what else I can do. And it's not what else I can do so much that I climb the hierarchy. It's so much what else that I can do that I'm learning. And where is that taking me? Yeah, you me? know what's amazing about that, too, is people, cor- corporations sacrifice losing great employees for that reason, Wanda, which is stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'll end up saying, okay, well, we're not going to take a great employee because they're bored and move them to another section because they're smart, intelligent, and they know the culture. Mm-hmm. We're just going to you know, keep them in that position. They get bored, and then they leave, which is a travesty, mm-hmm. actually. Okay. It is. It really is. And it, it is talking to younger women about what else they can do and where else they can go and what else they can learn um, and how that's going to help them build a long-term career is absolutely kid- critical for keeping them without a doubt. All right. Oh, I want to go back to – go ahead. No, I was going to say that, you know, I thought you were going down a different path, and I know you and I agreed that we can jump all over the place, but uh, of course. some of the best hires that I've made – were women Mm -hmm. that were out of the workforce for three to four years. Mm. Best hires I've ever made. And what makes them so exceptional? Well, number one, you pay them what they should be paid, which is a different conversation in terms of quality. But number two, they're happy and excited and driven to be back in the workforce. And I just ran across this, I mean, Five or six years ago, the best one of the best hires I ever made was my chief of staff. Uh, built on from there, and I ended up hiring others. And uh, you know, out of the workforce for three or four years, very intelligent business graduates. I mean, business degrees. Uh, they were so fired up; they worked twice as hard as um, anyone else that I've ever hired. So it was, that's why I thought we were going. But uh, right. no, I just wanted to add that little plug that's- in there. That's interesting. I watched a lot of organizations bring back um, people who've been out of the workforce or returners, if you will. And what they tend to do is to slot them back in the same job that she was in before she left, which if you left partly because you were bored is a really bad strategy if you want to bring people back and motivate them and excite them. What they want to come back to do is to do something new so that you're learning. Um, and I think that's Absolutely. what the younger generation is going to drive us to do. They're just not going to sit there and be bored. They want to learn. And at a pace we've never seen people doing in the past, I think. I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, I learn every day. I, you know, I, I don't even know how to keep up. Hopefully, maybe <laughs> you can give me advice on that. <laughs> Sounds like you're doing pretty well on that one. 
Okay. Um, any other advice for preparing for top jobs? You said staying agile, knowing how to um, learn, how to motivate and inspire and engage other people. The communications you said was really, really critical. Anything else that you think is key for preparing for a top job? Make sure you know what you're getting into. I think a lot <laughs> of um, people don't realize what a top job actually does on all facets meaning personally, professionally, with their friends and organizations and, and their family. So, okay. So that can If I can share okay. this with, I'll tell you a story, if I can, that defines this for me. I was fortunate enough to go to the World Economic Forum seven years in a row at Davos. Mm-hmm. And you have 30 minutes to meet other CEOs, and we always took advantage of that time. But there was a CEO of one of the top global telecommunications companies that was telling me a story about he went and his first grandchild was being born. Mm-hmm. And he went into the delivery room and his daughter looked at him and said, he and his wife were there. They had a brand new do- uh, granddaughter. And uh, the daughter said to the mother, um, hey, mom, I just want to thank you for always being there. And this guy, who's CEO of a major corporation, was like, uh-oh, what's going to come next? And his daughter looked at him and said, hey, dad, I really want to thank you for being there when it counts or oh. counted. And he, because he was worried, because his job, the point I was trying to make there, Wanda, was that his job preoccupied so much of his life that you have to get that balance right. And so he did. And so when his daughter said to him, thank you for being there when it counted, it meant a lot to him. I bet. That's what I was trying to deliver there. It's I'm seeing more and more top executives talk openly about how they manage the balance. Uh, just this week, I was listening to a top executive talking about how important it is to be there and what he's doing to make sure that he has that time in the midst of all the travel and everything else. So um, I think people are curious. Tell us a little bit about what is involved. What is this top job? What do people really do? You know, it's interesting you say that because I still coach CEOs today, and um, the number one thing, um, having experienced it myself, that I always say to them is, make sure you take care of yourself. Somebody told me that you will not realize how tired you are and how physically draining it is when you're traveling as much as you are, and you're, you know, every eight minutes you're doing something new, which I think uh, is that the statistic, Wanda, in terms of every CEO, every eight minutes they're doing something new. But uh, to answer your question, it's you need to take care of yourself. You need to rest. Um, You need to work out. I mean, working out for me was critical at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And you just need to take care of yourself. You need to have a support system around you, meaning those that work for you, that are going to actually make sure that that happens too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Um, all right. Any other advice about what the was top the old job? Line? I think the old line. What was that old line that um, the urgent and important? Sometimes the urgent yes. isn't the most important. So yes, yeah, that's that's true. 
Yeah, I think people who do this job particularly well are very keen to focus on where the priorities are, what's the one thing they have to get right, what is it they're counting on somebody else to do, and kind of letting that person get on with it, Um, because you can't do all of it. Yep, no, you're absolutely right. Okay. And you get pulled in different directions all the time. (laughs) All the time, all the time. All right, let's um, I'm shift a little bit and talk for a few minutes about you. And I'm interested, oh. you know, you interview people and you talk to people all the time about successes and failures. You talked earlier about taking a risk going to Tokyo. What other kind of risks have you taken and how have they paid off? Um, I've been very fortunate in the sense that uh, I did take off to Tokyo and learn Japanese, and which led me to a great career at Hydrogen Struggles. Um, uh, other risks um, I've taken, I've actually done things that I shouldn't have done. Like I took, <laughs> for a different reason, I thought I was called by a headhunter. I took, quite frankly, a job at a paper company, which I had no... Pa- this goes back to passion. And I guess one yeah. of your questions earlier, Wanda, about... Um, yeah, I mean, passion. I took a job as CEO of a paper company for different reasons and it was to grow and merge companies. And I did that and it was probably the biggest career mistake I ever made. So that was a risk that failed, but uh, I learned from that. And what I learned was that you truly have to be passionate about what you do. You have to get up every morning and say, you know what, I'm excited about this and I want to do this and I'm happy and I'm going to learn something new. So that was one of the risks that uh, I think I paid for it. Right. <laughs> so why did you take at the time at your uh, you know the headhunter calls you there's this job at a paper company why did you think that would be an interesting job because at the time the way it was described to me was merging six different seven different corporations it wasn't about running a paper company it was more about creating a large organization merging creating a back office creating an HR function creating an office of the CEO developing a brand. It wasn't about the paper industry itself. So the way it was described to me was um, that. Uh, mm-hmm. And I soon learned three months into it, it wasn't the right thing. Ah. So not the right thing that they needed or not the right thing they were going to do? Both. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. but I also learned that, I mean, I also learned that getting up, I love what I do. I mean, tell you right now, I get up every day and I'm excited about what I do. And I, I love the clients I talk to, but uh, this may come out the wrong way, but getting up every day and saying I'm going to sell 3,000 tons of toilet paper was not something that I was motivated about uh, after my previous career. Right, right. Okay. I'm glad somebody can get excited about that. We need it. But I can also imagine, we given do. what you had I been know, doing, that wasn't it. And, you know, the there's... Whole, well, the whole point is, you know, being... Pat, you you kind of love what you do. I mean, you love what yeah. you do. It's clear. You've oh, done it for a long time. And just, you know, love what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you take this job at the paper company. And you realized three months in that it wasn't the right thing, that your vision of what it was you were there to do was not what was really there. And what was there wasn't something you were excited about, as in selling toilet paper every day. A little bit more, but that's the story. So how long did you stay? How did you recover? 
Um, how did I recover? I, well, I was fortunate. I mean, number one, in terms of I stayed for less than a year, and I mm-hmm. knew from talking to people that it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was something that was going to be exciting. And then I took time off, and I was consulted by um, or had conversations with people that I respected in the marketplace. I had job mm-hmm. offers to do different things, and I took six months off. And I listened to people that I respected and people I knew, and that's where I ended up where I am. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So six months to stop and reflect on what other people thought, their perspectives, opportunities, and so forth. Is that the answer? Well, no, it was interesting because I was out. um, I was fortunate enough to take a year off. Mm -hmm. And so I took a year off, and I... I'm very fortunate to have investors in my company that started some very significant companies and they Mm -hmm. were giving me advice and they said, yes, you can go and do X, Y, Z, or you can go and be happy and do something entrepreneurial, which was a huge Mm -hmm. risk. I mean, Mm -hmm. that was a huge diversion for me. I've worked in corporate America my whole life. So to do what I did with Halo was Mm -hmm. huge in terms of a diversion. Okay. All right, fabulous. Okay. It's been a fascinating learning experience. I bet. I can can only imagine. It's a great space to be in, and plus the pace at which you're moving on this one. I'm going to shift from you for a minute and say, go back to people that I coach. Regularly, I coach people who've taken a job or they've taken a risk, and they don't love it. They're not happy with it. Something changes in the structure. It wasn't the job they thought it was. The personalities aren't what they thought they were going to be. The boss isn't what they thought it was going to be. I mean, a whole host of reasons. And they feel like they have to stay there. Otherwise, their resume looks bad. So what's your advice? Do you stick it out for 18, 24 months? Or do you recognize them, stay quickly, and move on? Um, I am more in the camp. You're going to get, you would get different answers on this, but I am in, mm-hmm. I'm more in the camp of, uh, figure out what you want to do and move on. Okay. I'm more in that camp of, look, life's too short. You really need to move, um, in the right direction mm-hmm. and be happy. You got to be happy and passionate about what you do. Right. Right. One of the things that I always think tips the balance for people is whether or not they can stay for that 18 to 24 months and keep their motivation up. Because if not, then at the end of that, you present as a pretty downtrodden individual, and that's not good for moving on to the next thing anyway. Okay, last question um, before we close for the day, because we're almost out of time. You know, if you were giving people general advice, I mean, you've given a lot of good advice in terms of the communication, in terms of the learning, in terms of doing reverse mentoring, in terms of doing stuff that you're passionate about and you care about. Any last piece of advice for people who are taking their career forward at this moment? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, and I'm at a different place at 50 than I was probably 45 or whatever. Just be open. Just be open to listening to opportunities. Be open to changes that are happening. Be open to the pace at which things are happening today. Um, 
and uh, do do what you're passionate about. I mean, it's tough. Dan, to go back to your last question, it's very difficult. You don't want to quit a job and not have a job. So mm-hmm. I understand that dynamic, but um, just find something that you enjoy doing. And, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to do, but things will come to you. And the world's okay. changing at such a pace that we'll all find something that we're going to love. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so, indeed. Okay. <laughs> it's... um. I think there's so many challenges today for people, for companies. There are challenges in knowing where the technology, the digital, the cybersecurity, the artificial intelligence, the robotics are really going to go. What's most relevant for my organization? How do I even begin to think about it? How do I get the organization mobilized behind something that's that dramatically new and different? How do I get my board mobilized behind it? There's all of those things. There's the pace at which it's coming at me. So what I do today could be irrelevant in 10 years easily. So that is coming at me. You mentioned earlier we change uh, a CEO or top executive will change topics every eight minutes. I think it's the same, and I think it's going to get worse for everybody within the organization. So we all have this ADD habit that we seem to be developing. And then at the same time, we say you need to be agile and you need to be open to listening and you need to you know, really love what you're doing and that you need to motivate and engage and communicate with people. And after a while, you start to feel like, oh, my gosh, it's more than I can cope with. So I think it's challenging. I think it's really, really tough to find your way through all of that. Okay? I agree. I agree 100%. I think you're spot on. Okay. All right. Well, with me today is Kevin Kelly. Kevin is um, currently chief executive of Halo Privacy. I can't speak today, which is a cybersecurity organization focusing on 100% privacy protection for client communications, proprietary information, and sensitive data. Kevin was at Hydrogen Struggles before that for many, many years, and he's the author of three books. I'll repeat those. It's the CEO, the lowdown on the top job, top jobs, how they're different and what you need to succeed, and the last one is leading in turbulent times. So, Kevin, thanks for a fascinating, wide-ranging conversation today from you know the future of our businesses to what it takes to succeed in the top jobs. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's always great to talk to you. It's great fun. Great, great fun. All right. And then join us next week for more about this notion of getting out of the comfort zone. And as you've heard from Kevin, that's one of the things that makes top executives so successful as they take risks. So we'll talk more about it next week. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.